Welcome to the Debit This, Credit That podcast with Wheeler Accountants, located in San Jose, California. In this podcast, we discuss how to solve accounting challenges in both your personal life and your business. We take an energetic, tech-savvy approach to solving accounting challenges that steal your focus and your time. Now, on to the show with your tech-savvy accounting experts, Matt Wheeler and Michael Bryant. Welcome to episode 30 of the Debit This, Credit That podcast by Wheeler Accountants with your hosts, Matt Wheeler and Michael Bryant. Actually, today is just going to be me, Matt Wheeler, so Michael is uh, not available to make it for our podcast. But I do have one of our other partners on today who's our guest today, Jen Hauk. She's been with our firm uh, since 2002, I guess, yeah. so longer long than time. me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, before that, you were with Keith Plattel, who was our former managing partner before myself. That's correct. And the Keith firm merged in 2002. And you were with Keith for how long before then? I started with Keith in 1989. Yeah, for three years. You were experienced. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. <laughs> so Jen specializes in individual income taxation, and she also does a lot of the estate and gift tax work here at our firm, as well as uh, she's the HR partner in the firm, handling a lot of the administrative duties for us there. So a huge part of our team. Very happy to have her on the podcast. And today we're going to talk a little bit about her practice, kind of what drives her, and then we'll go over some of the basic estate and gift tax issues that our clients see, uh, maybe some things about you know, aging parents and how you deal with those situations, which is something you handle quite mm-hmm. often, Yes. how our firm can assist in the process when you do have the death of a loved one, and wrap it up. Sound okay. good? Sounds good. All right. I got to ask you first. Okay. You've been doing this for a long time. You must be doing it for a reason. What What do you enjoy most about the job? What drives you? What's your passion? Working with individuals, working with the people. I've always liked numbers. They've kind of come. They kind of come naturally to me. But if you told me I had to just work with numbers, I probably wouldn't continue to do just this. It's working with the individuals and talking with the clients and getting to know them, developing a rapport to me and helping them. To me, that's what I'm passionate about. That's what drives me. Which is like the opposite of what you expect in an accountant. Yeah. The stereotypical accountant who's just like focused on the numbers and very dry and everything else. But you spend a lot of time meeting with clients, especially during tax season, outside of season now, on all kinds of consultative issues surrounding individual income tax, right. state and gift tax, everything else. Mm-hmm. And you are also a part, part-time unofficial therapist. It kind of comes with its, with its territory. <laughs> and, you know, and I don't mind it because... What happens when people are talking about their finances or they're talking about the decisions that they're making, especially with the state and trust and who they're going to give their money to and why? You want to know those things because those philosophies, those things are what are important to them. And they help you do the job that you need to do for them because you can kind of help get in their mindset. You kind of you understand where they're coming from. And then it just builds that relationship. And you, you know, they, they learn about my family. They kind of get my, you know, where I come from. So it's, it's, you know, definitely mutually beneficial, I think, for everybody. It's, you know, we're very much in the position similar to, I would say, any advisor, you know, doctor, dentist, those types of people that you see, you tend to stay with. They tend to stay with their accountants for the most part, you know, so have a history that you develop and you, you, you see these people grow over time. So it's exciting. I take it that a lot of the decisions you're helping them through aren't necessarily financial specifically or tax related. Yes. I mean, the, the, the nice part about it is, you know, I'm, 
I've had my own life experiences. I have the experiences that, you know, clients share with me. Obviously, I don't get into specifics with other clients about other situations, but I can garner their experience and I can learn from it. And maybe that is applicable to somebody else. So it's it's easy to to kind of gauge what they they're looking for. And a lot of times it's not just tax related tax. Tax is one aspect that we're looking at versus, you know, a million other things that reasons why they do what they do. You're just giving them the breakdown on their options, right. kind of the consequences of each choice, and then helping them guide guide them through those choices. Right. And if I'm not the right professional, you know, if I if you know I I can obviously taxes, you know, our area of expertise, or at least my area of expertise. If I'm not the right professional, at least I can help them find who they need to get the right guidance. Well, let's talk a little bit about just the overall estate and gift tax process, mm-hmm. mostly the estate tax process we're talking about here, mm-hmm. you know, for the benefit of our clients and listeners who may not know as much about it. There's a lot of confusion surrounding state and uh, gift tax sure. and, you know, when are estates taxable and mm-hmm. when are things that are to income tax or estate tax or both. For the typical clients, you know, we encourage them to get a living trust, right? Yes, Our vocal living trust. Can you give us kind of a rundown on what the living trust does for them? Well, one of the primary things that it does for them is, you know, when, when someone passes away, if they don't have a trust in place, they may have a will, but a will does not keep them out of probate. That's one thing, which probate has statutory fees. It can be very costly. Then they also are giving the courts the ability to dictate who gets what. The courts will, of course, acknowledge a will if there is a will, but if there's a if there's somebody who's not mentioned in the will, but yet they might have a right to some assets, you know, a cousin that lives in another country that they've never seen, but they might have a right, the court has to do those considerations. And so it's definitely better if you have a trust set up. There's, you know, creditors, those types of things. People set those things up for, you know, different reasons, credit protection. The other thing that they do is the reason why they set up for trust is you want, you know, family situations are complicated. Sometimes there are situations where you just don't want someone to inherit at a certain age. Maybe it's a child who, you know, has struggled growing up. And you know that this child, it's not that you don't want to give them their portion of their inheritance, but you know that they're going to need some help. And so you want to set up an extra trust for them and you want somebody else to watch it and they get their money in, in maybe lump sums or at a certain age. So there's a whole lot of different reasons why people put trust together. And there's no guessing. It helps the person who is who has survived you to deal with those things, because not only are they going through the emotional, the grieving or whatever the process is at that time, they're not guessing as to what you wanted. So right. it's important. So the, the probate process is a, a legal framework that's been put in place that serves as the ultimate backstop. If you don't do anything planning for your death, then we have laws that dictate exactly what will happen to your assets and everything will be taken care of. But that has to go through a court process. That's correct. There's mandatory statutory fees based on the value of the estate that are charged, both to the attorney handling it as well as to the, the executor. And then... And the, you, the estate rules are, are governed by state, so it's not a federal thing, it's a state thing. So each state has their own process and their own rules. That's a good point. And mm-hmm. it can get very complicated if there's multi-state issues involved. Correct. 
And it, it really just serves to serve as the backstop in case you haven't done anything. But you don't have control over what happens to your assets when you pass in that scenario. It, it could be unintended consequences down the road at the time of your passing if some of the relatives you wanted money to go to are now deceased and other ones that you can't stand. Right. Are the yeah. ones that are still it alive. It happens, yeah. and, you know, <laughs> unfortunately. So that's definitely part of it. What about on the estate tax side? What does the living trust do for you? Well, so let me kind of clarify that just a little bit. Sometimes the one of the bigger issues that I have is people don't understand estate tax versus income tax. There's two different types of systems that we're talking about, right? So a lot of times there's the um, misimpression or uh, people hear, oh, well, there's an inheritance tax. And then there's the, well, I'm not going to get taxed on that because I inherited. So there's all kinds of different views on what's really going to transpire. The trust is going to, if you have a trust set up and somebody passes away, you know, when, when things are, are put in trust, the assets, the titles, all of those things are changed. It shows your intent, right? What happens when somebody dies is you look at someone's estate. And basically, that is all their assets that they own or have control of or a majority interest in. And so a trust helps you dictate what belongs in the estate, basically, and helps you put the estate tax return together. It's sort of like a balance sheet, basically, of somebody's assets and what they're worth at that time. So depending on what that dollar amount is, is whether you need to file the estate tax return or... It's uh, it's not a taxable estate, and then there's the and trust. And what's the dollar amount now? Uh, it's a little over 11 million. I don't know the exact uh, amount, but it's per individual. So you know, a little over 22 million for married filing joint couples. Got so it's pretty high. Gone up quite a bit with yeah. the new law that just it, came out. Yeah. That's that's correct. But that law is as permanent as permanent gets in our in our right. government. <laughs> so things could change depending on. Who decides who's in office, who's, who decides what. So uh, those don't always. I mean, 10 years ago, eight years ago, there was no estate tax for one year. And then before that, it was a million. After that, it went to, you know, an index. So it changes all the time. Yeah. And so you, so the, the trust helps kind of corral all the assets together. That's you, correct. You t- get the balance sheet, the snapshot at the point in time at your death, and you see how much the value of the total estate is. If you're over the threshold, you're going to owe a state tax. If you're under the threshold, you're not going to owe a state tax. That's correct. And then how does income tax play into everything? So income tax, so the assets, as long as they're sitting in the trust until they get distributed out to the respective beneficiaries, they're going to sit in this trust. If they're income producing assets, there's going to be tax required, just like as if you had your own, if they were, you know, your own individually. You have a piece of rental property, for example. You're going to pay tax on that if there's income. That's income to you. It's the same thing with a a trust. It's just kind of a separate entity from the individuals until they get distributed to their respective beneficiaries. So a tax return would be required, and the minimums are very low for a a tax return. Gross receipts of $100 for a trust, gross receipts of $600 for an estate. So very easy, especially in our area, to get to those minimums. So there's going to be an income tax requirement um, for filing the income that's produced from those properties. Now, you get to write off the expenses and the deductions, you know, just like you would with an individual, um, but you still have to file a separate return. And then, the you know, once everything's passed out, then it gets put on the individual's tax return going forward. 
Does a trust help with income tax before you pass away? Well, it's considered disregarded, assuming that it is a revocable trust. If it's irrevocable, then it's going to have to file its own tax return because irrevocable, majority of the time, you can't make any changes. The only way that a change could be made is if you, somebody petitioned the court generally. But a revocable trust, the IRS considers that disregarded because you can make changes, you can change beneficiaries, and so all of the income gets passed through to you anyways. It's on your individual tax return, so there's no differentiation, but it does help in regards to making sure things are titled properly and um, having the trust set up. It's not for income tax reasons, but for reasons of title uh, reasons for following the trust when somebody passes away. If you have things set up properly, it just makes it that much easier. It shows your intent and what you planned to, what, what you were planning to do. Yeah, so there's all sorts of non non tax reasons That's why correct. you want the living trust and why we recommend it for the majority of our clients. Right, helps with the division of assets according to how you want it to go. Helps with estate tax a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, That's true. Where it carves out some of the assets on the first spouse's death mm-hmm. so they're not subject to estate tax on the second death. That's the way you if want to do it. Yeah, if it's if it's written in the trust document, a lot of the trust documents will have an A, what they call an A and B setup where they can split out, you know, or and there might even be, you know, a Q-tip in there, but where they split their assets depending on the size of the estate. A lot of times right now, because the exclusion is so high, those A and B setups aren't necessary but you definitely want to have that language just in case. It should be an optional thing. There should be things in, in the trust written that gives the trustee discretionary on, on those types of things because the laws change. What's an A trust and what's a B trust? So an A trust, and this is going to sound a little morbid, I guess, but an A trust is kind of, and this is the way it's easy to remember, is kind of is for the survivor. It's kind of the above ground, the person who's above ground. The B trust is for the bypass, is, is generally set up for the person or the assets that are for the person that has passed away, so they're below ground. So that's a t- right. kind of an awful way to <laughs> remember, but it's that's the way it's set up. And so it was very common when the exclusion levels were really low because it's very easy, especially in our area, when it was at a million dollars to hit a million dollar estate. Now that the estate exclusions are much higher, there may not necessarily be a need, although that's just for income tax. There are other reasons, non-tax reasons, why you may still want to go with an A and B setup because it could be a second marriage. There could be different different beneficiaries, all kinds of different reasons. So the B trust for the person that passes away, it's their share of the assets that gets put aside into this separate, now irrevocable D trust. That's correct. And What's also irrevocable is the beneficiaries of that trust. Typically, yes. if we're going to just choose like a standard example family, it would be the kids of, you know, the first husband and wife, you know, couple, their kids, the B trust is going to be set aside irrevocable for the benefit of those children. And then if the surviving spouse then later remarries, those assets are still carved away and set aside for the original group of children from the first marriage. That's right? correct. That's correct. It's for their protection, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, the way I advise a lot of my clients often is it's not about trusting or not trusting your spouse. It's just about unintended consequences later. And I use the example of if you don't carve the assets away and it all goes to the surviving spouse and then that spouse remarries and then your spouse passes away also. And now this new spouse that came into the marriage later 
that had that didn't know you at all or your children could then have all the power to disinherit if the estate and trust isn't set up properly That's and your correct. kids will then be left with nothing. So by carving aside the assets in the B trust and the bypass trust, you're at least guaranteeing that of your half of the money or whatever percentage of the money is yours, that's going to be going to your children and taking care of them. And then your surviving spouse can decide what they want to do with their portion. Hopefully they're also setting up a new trust with their new spouse and they're setting that's it aside correct. for your existing children also, or maybe a combination of existing children and new children from the new marriage. But at least you're, you're protecting your children in your B trust. That's correct. You pass away. Yes. Yes. These are terrible things to think about, but they have to be thought about because you, these you nightmares just never can know. unfold and Absolutely. we've seen them happen. Yes. These, these worst case scenarios. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, you get the trust set up, you know, fantastic. Right. You went to the, the estate attorney, you signed everything. They transferred your house title into the trust, but you're not done yet. Mm-hmm. What else do you need to do at that point to make sure your trust is really operating properly? Well, you definitely, you know, tight, obviously changing title, making sure your beneficiaries, even for assets that are not necessarily in the trust, for example, your IRAs, anything that's kind of in a third party administrator, it's it's being run by a third party administrator where you can designate a, a beneficiary. You need to make sure those are up to date. You have to, you know, make sure that a lot of times you're going to have to make sure that you've got the right trustee, you have a backup that you have, you know, that there's individuals that can help you or help the trustee to, you know, put your, you know, get everything ready when, you know, if and when you, you know, when you pass away. There's all kinds of different things. You definitely, we, one of our things that we do too is you, you definitely want to contact us as well as your advisor. We can help. We don't draft, we're not attorneys, so we don't draft legal documents, but we can help with some of the decision making on what goes where um, and helping your trust set up, you know, as you know, what proper language, what's things to be considered, what rights you should have, because uh, it is important from an income tax perspective to make sure that you have proper language to designate things like what is income to the trust, what is not income, what's considered principal, those types of things. And then we also, as part of our services, we like to get copies of the trusts and the wills once they're done because we keep those as a permanent record. Because a lot of times when somebody passes away, the first people they call is that person's accountant or their, you know, their attorney. But a lot of times it's us because they know that there's some sort of tax requirement, Mm -hmm. but they just don't know what to do. And by us having those items, and having been working with the client and familiar, we can advise, you know, properly and help them, you know, make it a, a little bit more smoother transition because it's never an easy process. Sure. And we'll get into some of the, our process on how we help in a, a minute. I want to go backwards a second here and on the titling of the accounts. I think that can often be an overlooked thing with sure. clients where you need to go to all of your banks and brokerages and everything and retitle each bank or uh, brokers like a different form or different method and what they need to see to title the account properly. But it's in, important. It right? is important. The the only thing that you have to consider and, and what, you know, you got to be careful is uh, broad saying all accounts. Yes, all accounts that you intend to be in the trust. You may have separate property. You may have things that you don't want in the trust. Those you just it's just important to have your accounts titled properly so that your intent is is known. Because what happens is if for some reason 
you pass away and you intended to have that asset in the trust and it's not titled properly. A lot of times attorneys are willing to go to the courts and petition the courts to say this was intended or those kinds of things, but you're, you're taking a chance. It's a risk. And in terms of like the estate and income tax consequences, when you pass away, most of your assets have like a reset to the current value for the income tax because they've been subject to the estate tax. Whether you actually paid estate tax or not is, you know, in part irrelevant. It's that they're, they've been subject, so they have a reset for income tax. That's but if you correct. don't have the proper titling on some of those accounts, you may jeopardize portion of the income tax step up. For example, if you if you uh, have an account, a brokerage account with a lot of securities in it, and it's titled under like a joint tenancy and not in your trust, that would actually only get a half step up on the assets in the account for the half for the decedent, That's not correct. the full step up as community property being inside your trust. And that could be, we're talking a significant thing. If you have a million dollars of unrealized gain in there, you're only going to get five hundred thousand of step up. Five hundred, you're not going to get a step up on. 500 times the capital gains tax rate, you're talking about a $150,000 mistake by not titling it properly That's in correct. that circumstance. That's correct. Absolutely. That could have easily been avoided. So, yeah, it's not something to take lightly. And I think the attorney will draft the documents again. They'll transfer usually like one piece of property as part of the, the fee agreement with them, or they'll do more like for additional fees, but they won't go to the banks and brokerages and retitle all your accounts for you. You need to do that. Yes. And sometimes if the accounts are really small, it's almost easier to just shut it down, open a new one in the trust rather than retitle it because it can be kind of a pain. Right. It's also a good time to consider consolidating. Right. Very true. Maybe if you have Simplicity. money all over the place, it's just too much to manage. So some things to consider. So sp- speaking of that, you know, aging parents or you're starting to age yourself, kind of preparing to, to line up all your financial affairs, what are some of the things that you would advise clients to do as they're approaching that stage of their life or as their parents are approaching that stage of their life to help with the process later on? So simplicity is one, right? You know, you you obviously don't always want to have your eggs in all in one basket, but at the same time, you don't, you know, the 22 different accounts may not necessarily be necessary anymore. Maybe we need to start consolidating, um, making it easier for whoever is going to be your trustee. Documentation, having your assets listed um, and we have things that we can help you and give you. Having that stuff listed all in one area can help with the trustee. Because one of the things that I find most often is, you know, usually it, it, in a, a parent-child situation, let's say, you know, a parent dies and the child, one of the children is coming in to help the surviving spouse or is, you know, the trustee now. They have a real big issue because they don't ever people don't always get involved with their parents finances it's kind of Mm -hmm. I don't want to say taboo but you know it's just doesn't usually work that way and so when they're trying to gather all their information they don't know what mom and dad had and so if you can start gathering that stuff and kind of get it all put in one place at least you know you're helping them out basically have your trust updated you know, every couple of years, Um, laws change, beneficiaries might change, trustees might change, you know, who a lot of times people make trustees of people that are friends that there are their age. Well, unfortunately, that person passed away before you did. And so now you're, you're in, you're in a quandary. So Mm -hmm. those are the types of things I would also say, you know, especially in this day and age with the, you know, technology, passwords, 
having passwords to your online banking, those types of things. I know it's it's scary with the way, you know, identity theft and all of those things. There's software out there, there's app out there, you know, apps out there and stuff that you can, you know, do a locking of your passwords, got kind of a master password that keeps all of your passwords. But having those things accessible and ha- letting the person know who's going to run your estate after you pass away, have that is really, really important. And this all boils down to helping the executor do their job, which is a substantial job. And I mean, how many t- times have you had clients come in and talk about they had no idea how much work it was going to be being the executor or trustee on like a parent's estate? And when you When you have 20 different bank accounts, you know, you're going to spend several days just going to every single bank and having to talk to each one about moving the assets. And those banks by law can't just let you do whatever you want with the money. No. If, if the account's not titled properly, you got to show that it was supposed to be in the trust. Or if it isn't the trust, you got to show that the, the trustee is dead. You're not a successor trustee. And that's why having everything titled properly makes it just so much easier from a practical standpoint for the executor. It does. And even when, even when things are titled properly, if you have so many different bank accounts, each institution has their own paperwork. So you're filling out paperwork and you're going to have to supply generally the death certificate, the trust that says something that certifies that you are the executor or the trustee. There's just a lot of paperwork involved, even if things are titled properly. So if you have so many accounts, that can be difficult. I know the strategy was, and this was, you know, kind of done for many years is, you know, people had different, you know, they don't want to put their, all their eggs in one basket. I get that. But, you know, people put money um, because they were planning on living off the interest and dividends along with, you know, their social security. And that was part of their retirement planning. Unfortunately, with the way the interest rates are and things are now, that's not really as much of a planning vehicle, but it was for many years. Mm -hmm. And uh, those are the people that are passing away now. So, you know, are getting to the age where they're going to pass away. So consolidating is huge. Another key reason to consider involving your you know, grown children in your financial affairs before you start getting too old is, you know, the the possibility of dementia later in life or some sort of Absolutely. memory loss and elder abuse. Mm-hmm. And if you have full time caregivers and you don't have someone else that has authority over your affairs, legal authority through a power of attorney or something before you potentially get to that point, which is a possibility you need to plan for, you can have pretty disastrous consequences. Absolutely. So, I mean, we're, you know, everything that we've referenced so far has been when somebody passes away, but absolutely, you know, unfortunately, dementia, Alzheimer's, those things happen, right? And what do you do in those instances? How do you help mom or dad or how do you help that person? And so making sure that those things are set up properly beforehand is important. The other reason that it's important too is because of family dynamics. When you might have a situation where mom and dad have decided to give one child more than the other or, you know, what for whatever reason, something is unequitable in maybe somebody's eyes, right? It's better to have those discussions while mom and dad are still alive rather than leaving whoever is the executor to have to deal with it because that's when litigation and lawsuits and those kinds of things happen. Yeah, documentation is so important, right? Mm-hmm. You have... One, one sibling who borrowed money from mom and dad because they were in a financial bind at one point, and then they say, oh, they told me that they, they were just going to forgive it, and I don't right. owe it back, but there's nothing written. Just creates a mess, right? So right. you need to be really careful and document those things. And 
my advice always to clients is treat it like you would treat a business transaction. That's Absolutely. The most fair and open way to do it. Document it, you know, get it in writing. And then that way the executor has something to follow and it's according to your intent and fair. You can, you can still give one child more than the others if you want. That's completely acceptable, but you should document your wishes so there's no ambiguity later on after you pass and you're not there to defend your decision or explain it. That's correct. And, it, and because we've, we've talked about how much paperwork is involved, it's not easy to close an estate. And so um, what happens is the process can be a long process. It's not uncommon for it to be one to two years. But when you have beneficiaries who are either unknown or have no clue what's going on or haven't been involved or don't know any of the decision making, that's when the unknown what's going on, you know, and that kind of makes it difficult for the executor. They may not be doing anything wrong whatsoever, but if they don't have the beneficiaries don't have the information, they start to question what's happening. So you're kind of getting into one of my questions coming up here. When do you consider doing something like a trust accounting? So and what is the trust accounting? So trust accounting is basically, you know, most trusts in their lang in, in language, in the language says that the trustee or the executor is responsible for keeping track of the income and expenses of the estate or the trust. A trust accounting can be formal. It can be formal, meaning that it's going to be required to go to the courts. It can be informal, such as just keeping a spreadsheet. It can be us doing bookkeeping, you know, or somebody doing bookkeeping uh, of the trust and estate. But the reason why it's necessary, there's a couple of different reasons why it's necessary. One is you're going to need this information for preparing the income tax return. You don't want to miss out on deductions. You don't want to miss out, miss out on expenses. A lot of people don't usually know what what is the expense or what isn't. Two, you have beneficiaries that you have a fiduciary responsibility for. You need to be able to account for the funds and where they came from and where they went. And when you have different beneficiaries, when you have a situation where, you know, unfortunately it happens in the best of families, but sometimes when mom or dad passes away, you know, if there was any dysfunction in the family, it's like tenfold once somebody passes away. Mm -hmm. There was no trust between the siblings. A lot of times that trust is exemplified or, you know, when somebody passes away. So having an accounting, whether it's done, you know, formally or informally by us or, or, or just the trustee is important because the beneficiary has the right and can ask for that information. And so the trustee or the executor has to provide it. So it's necessary. And so we do do those in our office. A lot of times we will, you know, get in a situation where a client will hire us because you know, they're the trustee and they maybe they have siblings that, you know, it's not going so well. They don't have great relationships, so they don't talk. And the sibling is wanting a formal accounting. And so we have done those. We do many of those. And basically, it's just there's specific format for the formal accounting that it has to has to be provided. You know, there's a specific format. But sometimes people will waive the formal and then just get bookkeeping reports, you know, maybe out of QuickBooks, those kinds of things. But it's definitely necessary just, you know, not not only for preparing a tax return, but it's also necessary a lot of times because the trust dictates it or a beneficiary has asked for the information. Right. But at a minimum for a lot of our clients, we recommend they set up a QuickBooks online account or something that it links to the estate bank account. And that way you're automatically getting all the activity from the account, income and expenses. You're coding it. There's double entry accounting, so we know the accounting is solid and we're not missing anything because we can reconcile. And then that helps us prepare an accurate 
income tax return, much better than relying on the client's spreadsheet or their kind of one-sided method of doing accounting that may be missing out on potential items, income or expense, which could cause problems later. Right. And it generates reports that are useful to give to the other beneficiaries if they ask in an informal manner. That's correct. But if you have a situation where you know there's going to be a problem or you have one particularly, you know, litigious sibling or something along those okay, lines, you know there's a problem, maybe mm-hmm. then you step up to a formal accounting where there's a little more assurance there and they're able to feel a little more confident with the numbers, the beneficiary. Right, right. Good. Anything else on aging parents, kind of end of life planning from a financial perspective? People often ask me, you know, about gifting sure. at that point. Sure. Yeah, I mean, so there's, there's, it, gifting is a good vehicle to move assets out of your estate and it's d- depending on the size of your state, it can be some really good planning. A lot of times you want to gift something to your children or to your beneficiary prior to your death so that it's not included in your state when you pass away and they have access to it now. They have whatever, you know, maybe it's a piece of rental property and you decide you want to give that to your, you know, son or daughter or something like that. They'll have access to the income now rather than having to wait. Gifting is important. There are definitely reasons why you want to give from a non-tax perspective, but then there's also from a tax perspective. It's not as big of a vehicle currently. Well, I shouldn't say that. What Because the exclusions are so high, the $11 million per person, a lot of individuals actually probably won't have taxable estates. And so by gifting away, you know, an asset before you die, that asset does not is not eligible now for a step up or a step possibly sit down, but a, an adjustment in basis because it's no longer yours. Yeah. So there's a income tax trade-off. There's an income tra- tax trade-off. That's exactly right. A gift tax is a different type of tax, right? Individuals can give $14,000 away to an, 15 now. Is 15 and 18. Yeah. yeah. Um, I can give that away to anyone, you know, every, every year if they want to, that amount kind of goes up a little bit with inflation. And they don't have to file what we call a gift tax return. Once they exceed that $15,000 amount to that particular individual, then they would have a gift tax filing requirement. It's an, They can choose to pay the gift tax if they wanted to, but a lot of times people use their gift exclusion. It's an informational return, but the government does require you to file this form that says, hey, to let them know I gave this to X person. Now, if you're a married filing joint couple, you can each give $15,000 to a single person and not mit- hit the filing requirement, assuming we're, you know, it's community property. Yeah. So the gift thing, you need to really think hard about it because there's an income tax trade-off. The most the time I usually look at gifting with my clients in like a substantial or material amount is when they're going to be over the estate tax limit because then you're trying to get assets out of the estate. If they're under, it's a harder decision you're thinking about the income tax trade-off versus probably the non-tax reason you're considering doing the gift. And you can't just give away all your assets right before death because they get added back into your estate at the point of the gift tax return, otherwise everyone would gift away everything (laughs) on the deathbed, you know? So a lot to think about in gift. Don't, don't go rushing into doing a gift without first consulting with absolutely first because there, there's, there can be large income tax trade-offs. I tell it's usually better to inherit property that has a low income tax basis because then you're going to get a high tax basis That's when it's correct. inherited versus a gift. It's a carryover basis. So you're going to take over the donor's income tax basis, which may be really low. Right. And so you're taking that, you have that huge built-in gain 
that you're going to have a tax consequence on at some point, income tax, by doing the gift, it's better to wait and inherit. But sometimes people just want to. Sure. There's give like I said, there's not yeah. you know non-tax reasons and other reasons why people want to gift. One tax strategy I talk about with some of my clients that have aging parents, especially if they're in full-time care and the medical expenses are really high, is about doing Roth conversion or distributing pre-tax retirement assets like IRAs or 401ks Mm -hmm. to help pay for those expenses. Because those are some of the few assets where there's both an estate and an income tax consequence to the beneficiaries because no one's paid income tax on that money yet so far. True. True. Um, you definitely, if you're, if those, you have those expenses and you know you're going to have almost, you know, zero tax because you're, you know, your medical, their home care expenses, those kinds of things. Yeah, you might as well pull the money out so that you're paying zero, zero tax, basically, right? And converting, then leaving it there. And like you said, it is subject to both income tax and estate tax because your IRAs and those vehicles are included as part of your estate. They may not be in your trust, but they're included in your estate when we're talking about valuing the estate. So definitely a good strategy. Yeah, and it's better for pull the money out, have grandma pay no income tax, and the beneficiaries inherit cash where they don't pay any income tax versus the beneficiaries inherit part of the IRA. Now they're going to pay income tax and be required to take money. At the top bracket potentially and be required to take money. So there's definitely a tax strategy even in those later years where you want to take advantage of those things. And that's one of those annual strategy things, short-term strategy where you got to be on top of it every single year. Usually you want to touch base with us at the end of the year to see how much we can pull out of the IRA or the 401k to not have tax consequence. Because if you missed the boat on that, you lost an opportunity for that year, like if you had negative taxable income or something. Exactly. So clients, when they have a death of a loved one, they often approach us as one of the first people along with the estate attorney you describe our process that we go through with them, what materials they have available to them, how we help in, in the administration process for the trust or the estate? Sure. Um, a lot of times what happens is, like you said, they'll call us. They may have seen the attorney or talked to an attorney. They may not. A lot of times we're usually the first people. Generally, we we have a couple of things that we can give them. One, we have a pretty comprehensive estate checklist. And basically what that does is it gives a list It's all-encompassing, so some things are not applicable to every situation, but it gives the trustee or the executor the idea of the things that they should be considering that need to be done, the timing of when it needs to happen, and who possibly could be responsible. Is it us? Is it them? Is it the attorney? Mm -hmm. Those kinds of things. Then we have an asset inventory sheet that we give to them to kind of help them gather all of the assets in one place because it's important to know where these you know accounts located who are the beneficiaries who owns it are there you know um, what are the values all of those things and we need to compile that when we're talking about estate or even just doing an income tax for the, the trust so having all of those things are important the other thing that we do is generally is when i'm meeting with a client i usually get the name of the attorney that they're going to work with and i try and reach out to the attorney and chat with them about hey we have this mutual client kind of getting an idea of what the attorney's involvement is, where where things are at, what their philosophies are, and what they plan on doing, basically, and who's going to do what. You know, a lot of the times attorneys might prepare 706s, but a lot of times 706s. is a, sorry, an estate tax form. So sometimes they'll prepare it, sometimes we will. So we have to kind of get on the same page as far as that's concerned. 
if they have not met with the attorney, a lot of times, and I have the trust document and I'm able to read through it, I can provide them with questions. I've done that and give them questions on, okay, how are we addressing A, B, C, D? So that way they become, they come more prepared. All of this is new usually to somebody. They don't, people don't tend to be executors or trustees more than once or twice in their lifetime, right? So um, all of these, the language and the documentation and what is needed is new to them. And so the more guidance we can give them up front and the more they hear the repetition of what needs to happen, the more they can understand and they can do their job better. Yeah, and they may have liability from being the executor. There is definitely also, liability. So cross There's, all their T's and dot their I's. Absolutely. Having a fiduciary responsibility is an important thing. Um, it means you have a legal right to do what's best for that trust obligation, or this yeah. obligation. Yeah, obligation, sorry. Uh, legal obligation to do what's best for the trust and estate and the beneficiaries, which, you know, can be difficult at times because sometimes the trustee and actually a lot of times the trustee or the executor is also a beneficiary. And so making sure that everything is, like you said, all I's are, you know, dotted and all T's are crossed is important. Right. And you, you want to do what's right and what's correct. You of want to course. Follow the wishes of the deceased. That's and, correct. And what right. They wanted. So well, generally, if you're were appointed the executor, or the trustee, that person had trust in you that you were going to follow their wishes. And, you know, when it comes to the trust document, that's quote unquote, unquote, the Bible, basically. That's what you follow. That's whatever it says is what needs to happen. It's very difficult to do something other than that. It usually requires some sort of legal action. Mm -hmm. And that covers most of the questions I think we had on the basic, you know, estate and trust process and everything else. Is there anything else you want to add on things people should be thinking about or, you know, when they should be contacting you? Um, or, or anybody, their accountant at the firm here? Well, well, I mean, anytime you have a situation where you're going to make a decision, like you said, on gifting, should I give this now or later? Should I, you know, sell this asset, not just from an income tax point of view, but from an estate point of view? Should I do this? Should I, uh, any kind of financial transaction like that is going to have an impact on your estate and your income tax return, right? So there's all kinds of things that you need to think about. If you have a parent who is, you know, in this situation and where they're getting older and they're needing more and more help, it doesn't hurt to call us and talk to us about what's needed. What's what are, what's going to happen? What do I what are my concerns? What are we going to need to worry about? What should I get being proactive? What should I look for and what should I gather now? You know, you talked about having, you know, medical care, right? People tend to go into assisted living and then sometimes, you know, as things progress, their, their their care needs to be a little bit more. Talking about what's deductible, how much of that monthly fee is now deductible versus just a percentage, those kinds of things. So when you have situations where health is changing, beneficiaries are changing, life events, those are the types of things where you want to contact us so that we can help you make sure that your state and, and your income tax situation is, is set up properly. Yeah. So reach out to your accountant here at the firm. If you have any questions about your situation, don't, don't be shy. So we're here for, we're here to help. And I tell a lot of clients that the estate and gift tax stuff can be like the biggest dollar tax saving things that we could do for you. We look at your overall lifetime of tax. People just tend to look at it in terms of every year, just this current year's income taxes. But some of these decisions impact a much larger dollar amount on your overall net worth and estate. 
over the entire your entire lifespan of Absolutely. being a taxpayer. Not just yours, it's your beneficiaries, too. And your beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. So you really want to make sure you're contacting us. Reach out to us. If you're not a client, we have an Ask Wheeler section on the website where you can click on and submit some questions to us and schedule a consultation with one of our accountants. But these are the kind of things you definitely want to be asking us about. We have a lot of experience in dealing with this. We have several thousand clients. We've gone through these things many, many times, and this is where we can provide a lot of value. Right. Well, that's all for today's episode of the Debit This, Credit That podcast. As always, if you have any questions, you can contact your Wheeler accountant preparer, or you can submit a question online on our website in the Ask Wheeler section at the bottom of the page. Please remember to follow us on social media for regular updates, at Wheeler CPAs, and also on LinkedIn and Facebook. Thanks for listening as we help you solve for accounting.